welcome to Village Church. My name is Chris. I'm the newest member of the staff here, and let me just say thank you for welcoming my family and me. Uh, we are very blessed. If you have your Bible this morning, will you turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Warring Without Walking, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And I have good news for you this morning. Regardless of how sinful you are or were, regardless of how much you have suffered or been oppressed by the sins of others or your own sins, you are not beyond God's grace to save you and use you in Christian ministry for God's glory. The Apostle Paul, the author of this letter, actually proves this. His past was deeply sinful, and he suffered much for God. In 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, meekness... It's not a word we use a lot. It's not weakness. Meekness is something like strength restrained. We're afraid of giants. We're afraid of the way they may wield their power for ill, but we're not afraid of giants when they use their power not to harm us, but to protect us. A father who does not turn in on his family to abuse them or abandon them, but rather a father who turns his strength outward in order to protect his family and to provide for them. That's an illustration and an application that's an instance of meekness. You don't have to pursue weakness to be a Christian. You can pursue strength, physical strength, mental strength, willpower, emotional strength, and maturity. None of those is at odds with Christian teaching. We're not called to be weak in that way, but we're either we are called to be meek and the meek, Jesus says, shall what? Inherit the earth. And so Paul says he's acting and operating and thinking by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Gentleness is when you have a person of strength who uses that strength, not for evil, through a lack of restraint, but rather for good. And this is the program that the apostle Paul says he uses. He entreats the Corinthians by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. And then he says, if you look there in verse one, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. Now, what we're going to learn in a moment is that the apostle Paul is actually quoting mockery that's been thrown his way. The Corinthians are saying, well, he's humble when he's around us. And history would tell us, I'm not sure how accurate this is, that the Apostle Paul was a bit of an ugly man. He was a bit of a weak man, a timid man in his appearance. And perhaps the Corinthians said, this little weasel man, he comes among us and he's afraid to say to our faces what he'll tell us in his very bold letters. They're using this as an occasion to reject the apostolic authority of Paul. And so he's quoting them here. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. And what the apostle Paul is saying is, I don't care what you think about me because my program is one of the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. You see, tone matters, but that doesn't just work one way. It's not always that we should hold off or pull back on our tone. Some topics deserve an even harsher tone. 
And that must conform not to our own standards, but to God's. Verse 2 there, the Apostle Paul writes, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. There were some in Corinth who were accusing the Apostle Paul and the other apostles of walking in accordance with the flesh. Not just in terms of sinfulness, but they're, they're also saying, well, Paul's not much. Don't worry about this little man when he comes around to correct you. Look at how weak he is when he's among us, how bold he is when he writes these things. You've heard the modern-day equivalent of this, right? Oh, a keyboard warrior. He's mighty brave behind a keyboard, behind an anonymous account. That's what they're saying of Paul here. But if you skip down with me, the Apostle Paul defends himself in verse 7. He says, look at what's before your eyes. If anyone's confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ so also are we. You see, Paul is saying, look, Corinthians, if you're Christians, how much more so are we Christians as apostles? In fact, the reason that those in Corinth are Christian is because of the gospel that Paul preached to them in the first place. So if he preaches a false gospel, they're false believers. But if he preached a true gospel and they believed, then they're true believers and Paul is too. In verse 8, he writes, For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I don't want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. He's saying that this is a complete myth that his letters are too bold and that his presence is too weak among them. They're the same thing, both the way that Paul writes his letters and the way that Paul is physically present among the Corinthians stems from the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. He's saying, I'm using Christ's program here and I don't want to be too bold in your presence because there's a lot of sin in your church. Verse 10, for they say his letters are weighty and strong but his bodily presence is weak. And his speech of no account, Paul actually makes an interesting move here. He says, no, you're right. I'm not a good speaker. He just concedes the point to them. And he does so later on in these letters to the Corinthians as well. But nevertheless, he's clarified his tone in order to prove that he's a true apostle. But what I want you to see is that just as with Paul, Your past sins, your sufferings, don't keep you from being used in service to the Lord. The Apostle Paul had a history of great sin in his life. He referred to himself as the chief of sinners. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the next chapter, we're not going to look at that, but Paul goes through and details all of his many sufferings for the sake of Christ. So if you're here this morning, and you are, whether you're young or you're old, ugly, beautiful, handsome, educated, uneducated, the Lord can use you just as we see here with the apostles and specifically the apostle Paul. How will the Lord use you? Don't miss what Paul says here. Look at the remainder of the text here. These people accuse Paul, the meek and gentle Christian man, of walking according to the flesh and warring in relation to the flesh. But Paul says, no, that's a lie. I'm following the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I'm using strength restrained, power under control, and this matters for you, and this matters for me, because we are at war. 
Now, I know there's this immediate objection that springs into our minds. That's a cringy thing to say. Nobody wants to talk about being at war. That's so silly. And the theological liberals make a big deal of this. They hate that type of language that we are at war. And yet the Bible uses that language throughout. If you're here this morning, whether you want to be or not, you are involved in a spiritual war. Not speaking of physical war, there are people in this world who don't believe any physical war is justified. Terrorists are some, they don't believe there's a just way to conduct war. Pacifists say there's no just reason to ever go to war. And yet the Bible rejects both of those. And biblically and historically, we have a tradition in Christianity known as just war theory, but that's not what we're talking about this morning. The war that you and I are in is not physical, but very much opposite that. It's a spiritual war, which rages not only in the world around us through the culture and unbelieving ideologies or thought, but also in your hearts. And so point one here this morning is this. We wage war according to the Spirit. We wage war according to the Spirit. Look in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. Paul clarifies. He says we're not walking contrary to the Spirit of God. He's not saying that they're in the flesh so that they do not please God, but rather he's saying they're in a body and flesh just like you and just like me. If you're here this morning, you've got a body. War is being waged, but it's not pertaining to your body in that sense. All the wars we see in this world are representations on a micro scale of what's taking place on the macro scale, spiritually speaking. And yet victory in Jesus is already yours, provided you're trusting in him. Because the Lord defeated his enemies and was raised. You have forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. The Lord has ascended to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And so we walk in flesh, but we're not waging our war according to the flesh. How are we waging it then? Look in verse 4. Paul says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You and I are gifted with weapons of war to be used in, spiritual, in the spiritual realm. We possess power from God, divine power. Paul talks about this in Romans 8, verse 8. He writes that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, he's speaking there of flesh in the sinful sense. You, however are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. There is no second blessing of the spirit. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you're in union with him and you're filled with his spirit. And the Lord has given us these weapons for spiritual warfare. What are these weapons for? Are they to use on one another? Or, or to envy one another? No. They're used to destroy strongholds. Strongholds in our culture. Strongholds in unbelieving thought. Strongholds in our hearts. Point two here then is that we wage this war to destroy arguments. Look in verses four through five of Second Corinthians 10. 
The word of the Lord says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We're not talking about yelling at one another. Some people hear argument and they think, oh, they're arguing, they're yelling at one another. They're enraged, they're angry with one another. Or they're yammering on and on about their opinions regarding the talking heads on television and the political things happening around our nation. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about arguments which lift themselves up against God. And you and I, according to the word of God, are to destroy those. Paul undoubtedly is thinking here of Proverbs 21 and verse 22. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. The idea is a a man who goes in and climbs this wall to this great city, breaks into their stronghold without them even knowing and bringing the whole thing down. That requires a knowledge, doesn't it, of the opponent's viewpoint. The Bible says in Proverbs 26, 4 through 5, answer not a fool according to his folly. You don't jump onto their view of the world to consider whether or not you can bring them back over to ours. No, you don't answer in accordance with their folly. They don't have the truth that they're unbelievers. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Rather, answer a fool according to his folly, meaning answer the fool as his folly deserves, lest he be wise in his own eyes. We're not to remove ourselves from those who don't espouse faith in Christ. We are to engage them with the truth of the gospel, lest they be found wise in their foolishness. The way I like to put it, the way I put it in Tennessee is this. Lots of people have opinions. God's is the that matters because his is truth itself. The one I want to believe is God through his holy word. We destroy through the word of God, through the spirit of God, and through the blessing of human reasoning, arguments that are lifted up against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this task of destroying unbelieving thought is not merely the proclamation of the gospel, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. It is that, but it's not just that. It's not merely your testimony of that moment when you truly believed in Jesus Christ and you were converted and filled with the Spirit of God. It is that, but it's more than that. This text is talking primarily about taking to task unbelieving thought, whether outside of the church or inside of the church, whether it's you or whether it's me. If it gets in the way of the knowledge of God, it needs to be dealt with because we're in a war. And the way we fight this war is not physically, but spiritually through God. I mentioned a moment ago the strongholds and the arguments of our culture and in unbelieving thought and in our hearts. And so I want to talk a little bit about those three aspects of this. Some, you see, would raise theological or philosophical objections toward Christians who use the word of God in the public square. 
They would say, we don't need to be so busy going around fighting the so-called culture wars. Well, I confess that I still don't know what they're talking about. I don't know what the culture wars are per se, and I don't know why fighting them is a bad thing. If you mean that I'm supposed to remain silent or partake in the follies of the mind, the will, the emotions that are thrust upon us by an unbelieving world, then I'm going to reject the idea that fighting the culture war is bad. When you're piping things into our homes through smartphones and laptops and desktops and Xboxes and Nintendos and TVs or whatever else you have that are not in accord with godliness, those things must be resisted or you must shelter your family from them or else you must teach your family to take that unbelieving thought apart. And I don't think that being in the, engaged in the culture war in that sense is something that we merely do as Christians in a defensive posture. Why? Because Christ is king. Christ is Lord of everything. This is his world. If you're redeemed by him, you belong to him. And we move forward under his banner. We are not to be those who are weak in the presence of cultural pressures, but those who are meek in the presence of cultural pressures. We're to be developing our own culture in accord with the word of God as we apply it even to the follies of unbelieving thought. And so I don't understand this objection to so-called culture war. I think a girl's a girl. I think a boy is a boy. I think that God ordained and instituted marriage from the beginning, from the earliest chapters of the Bible between a man and a woman. I think that so-called abortion which is the murder of the preborn and innocent children in their own mother's wombs is wicked and evil. And unless our land repents of it, we will face the just judgment of God. Am I supposed to stop believing those things because some silly so-called progressive Christian tells me I shouldn't be engaged in the culture wars? I'm not going to listen to them. That's silly. And you shouldn't either. Those things are against God. They're against his word. They're against the knowledge of God. And you and I are tasked in the word of God with using the weapons of warfare to destroy these opinions that are exalted against God. Obedience to Christ follows from the fact then that Christ is king. He's the Lord of everything. We have world religions, which are representative of unbelieving thought. This could be Atheism as well, I'll include in those, but they do nothing but spend their time lifting up these faulty, false opinions against the knowledge of our God. The word of the Lord says from the earliest pages in Genesis that there are three persons in God. There is God the Father, there is God the Son, there is God the Holy Spirit. Each of these three is truly God, and yet there is one God. That's the doctrine of the Trinity, basic Christian belief. And another belief is intricately woven together with that belief, namely the belief that the person of Jesus Christ is both God and man, two natures, one person. And if you find yourself rejecting as every world religion and cult does, if you find yourself rejecting either of those beliefs or both, you have no way left to save yourself. That's why every world religion and cult, other than Christianity, seeks to reach up 
and bring God down to us. Seeks to reach up and reach God's standard. Seeks to do this thing and do that thing to try to earn God's favor. You can never earn God's favor through your good deeds in an unbelieving state. You'll never reach up to God. Christianity is the only faith in this world where we don't strive to make our way up to God, but no, God comes down to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so it only makes sense that those who reject the Trinity and reject the person of Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God are left to rely fully upon their own so-called good deeds for their salvation rather than trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ shed for them. Now let's talk about your heart and mine. We've talked about the culture. We've talked about unbelieving thought. Now let's talk about when it gets into our own hearts and minds. What do you wrestle with? I'm not a mind reader. This is not about your neighbor. My wife's figured out a way around that, by the way. She told me last Sunday, she said, that was a really good sermon. It really spoke to me. What did you think about it? Hint, hint. It was for you. What do you wrestle with in terms of sins and temptations and struggles and challenges in your mind, in your emotions, in your will? What lifts itself up against God that's in you? You walk in the flesh and so do I, but we're not in a power struggle as though this war were physical in nature. We're in a truth struggle. The tempter wants to lie and tell you you're too weak. You're not strong enough to make your way out of this. It's all about power. It's not. It's about truth. You turn the light on and the darkness goes away. You believe the truth of the word of God and the spirit helps you out. Here's your command this morning. And before I, want, before I read it, I want you to ask yourself, how are you doing with this command this morning? Before God, do you take every thought captive to obey Christ? Point three here is this. We wage war by taking every thought captive to obey Christ. Verse five, Paul writes, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Do you take every thought captive to obey Christ? Because if you and I would do just this, make the battle place the mind, every thought you have, every thought you're given, don't measure it by itself. Don't measure it by your own standards. Don't measure it by the standards of unbelievers, but bring it back to Christ. Bring that thought back to his word. That's how you wage war in your mind and in your heart and in your will. Because when you take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, then you see God's law as your delight. Do you see God's law as a burden or do you see it as a blessing? I'm afraid we've bought into this Christian culture where we think we can just develop our American lifestyles and then tack Christ onto the end of it. I want to be wealthy and prosperous and well-educated, well-known, have a nice-looking house and family, and we'll show it off to the world through Instagram. It's vanity. Jesus is not your Lord and Savior if that's what you premise your life upon. 
Jesus, in the most terrifying words, I believe, in the Bible, in Matthew 7, verse 21, says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If you've been saved by the blood of Jesus, if you are indwelt by the spirit, you have these weapons of warfare in you. You have the authority and the power to do all things by his power, by his authority, for his glory. And that's the best life you can have this side of heaven as well. It's a life that's abundant. It's a life that's free. It's not a life that's free from suffering or pain or discouragement, but is what the Lord has tasked you and me with doing. So we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And then we come to something like the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and verse 1. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And we read that and we're in the spirit of Christ and we think, Lord, we don't have any other gods before you. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Lord, we're not going to take your name in vain. Lord, we're not going to set aside or we are going to set aside a time of rest from our earthly duties in order to worship you. We're going to honor our father and a mother. We're not going to commit murder or have these bitter thoughts in our hearts toward our own brothers and sisters. We're not going to commit adultery or even look at a woman with lust in our hearts. We're not going to steal. We're not going to bear false witness against our neighbors whom you love, Lord. We're not going to covet what others have because you've given us all we need. That's taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You see, the mechanism of obeying God's law, which is good, by the way, is the mechanism of taking everything in your mind captive to the obedience of Christ. And it's not just you. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, this is the Shema that the Israelites would recite every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Listen to this now, verse seven. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Oh, by the way, in Hebrew, there are singular words and plural words. This one is in the plural, the word you. In Hebrew, there are masculine and feminine words. This one is in the masculine, the word you. This is specifically directed to the fathers in Israel and therefore specifically directed to you if you're a father who is here this morning. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. 
Jesus repeats this in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 36. Someone comes and asks him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. I'm not being radical here. In Psalm chapter 10, verse 3, the word of the Lord says, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Listen to verse 4. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. In the King James Version, it says, God is not in all his thoughts. Is God in all your thoughts? Again, I can't think for you. I can't read your mind. Can't think for me. Can't read my mind. But if God is in all your thoughts, then you'll look at these 10 commandments. You'll look at the law of God and you'll love God through doing them, through obeying the Lord. To conclude here, Paul writes in verse 12, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. He says, we dare not classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. Listen to this. When they measure themselves by one another, it literally says, when they measure themselves by themselves. Isn't that silly? They compare themselves with one another. And Paul says they are without understanding. They've created their own rules, their own regulations, their own definitions of success. And that is exactly by and large, what the American evangelical church has done as well. We've done it in our guilds. We've done it in the academy. We're told to trust the experts, to trust the celebrities. Well, how do you know who that is? Well, the experts tell us who the experts are. The celebrities tell us who the experts are. Oftentimes, we find when they fall, they weren't taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Education itself is not based on this idea of comparison between ourselves. You think, why is he preaching now on education? Because the assumption of all education until recently is that the point and the purpose of education is not merely going somewhere to learn a trade or a skill or some sort of doctrine or discipline to make money or to gain worldly favor and success. The assumption of all education until recently was that we learn in order to know God. The knowledge of God is at the center of all that we do. All of it. You see, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He is Lord of chemistry. He is Lord of biology. He is Lord of sociology. He's Lord of anthropology. He's Lord of psychology. He's Lord of philosophy. He's Lord of theology. He's Lord of all. Not just this little thing or that little thing. He's Lord of mathematics. He's Lord of all of it. It all points to him. When we see the thunderstorm, we shouldn't fear the storm. We should fear the one who controls it. Yeah. 
When we see the beauty of the beach, we shouldn't just appreciate the sound of the waves crashing and the glistening of the sands. We should be pointed toward the one who created them. Every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We don't measure ourselves by ourselves. We measure ourselves by the standard of God's word. Look in verse 13. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. You say, I don't know how that applies to me. Well, it applies because this is what Paul is saying by the spirit of God. This is important. God doesn't give you any more or any less than what he wants you to have. You're not too ugly or too beautiful. You're not too over or undereducated. You're not too weak or too strong. You're not too sinful or too innocent. The Lord will use you in your place of ministry because he is the one who is sovereign over all, including you, and the ministry that he has fitted you to. The measurement meted out to Paul and the apostles is given by God for God's glory. As we take every thought captive, you and I, we don't have to worry about the effectiveness of our ministry if we trust in the Lord. God has you and has me in this place, in this time, according to his plan, for his will, and for his ministry. Verse 14, for we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond um, <clears throat> the, the limit in the labors of others. But our hope, our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be so greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of the work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He quotes there from the prophet Jeremy. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. He commends you this morning, provided you take every thought captive. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it's not the one who commends himself who's approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. And so our application this morning as a reminder to you and to me, tailor your tone to the topic and situation. Rely only on the spirit. Use God-honoring arguments against lofty opinions. Take every thought captive to obey Christ and boast only in the Lord. The apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 speaks of when you come together, you should celebrate the Lord's Supper. It looks back to the broken body and the spilt blood of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ for our sins. It also looks forward to the time when we will eat it with him. In the back of the seat in front of you is a packet there. 
that has the elements. Take this time now. Take every thought captive to Christ.